love to watch women fight. Whether a slap in the face on shows like Dynasty and Real Housewives, or Uma Thurman and Lucy Liu in Kill Bill, women in combat have fascinated us for decades. But in the movies, at least, many of these on-screen feuds got their start from real-life feuds, some that lasted 50 or 60 years. Today, we get to the bottom of these Hollywood fights, squabbles, tiffs, brawls, and scuffles that not only defined many women's careers, but also fueled them and sometimes destroyed them. Today, I play referee in the fight between woman versus woman. Slums of Film History, a lowbrow look into the high art of cinema. Every episode is an in-depth look into a niche topic of film that is not normally discussed in polite company. I'm Slate. And I'm Tom. And each week, one of us researches our respective topic, writes an episode, and then schools the other. We discuss everything from amputation, masturbation, menstruation, and castration. If there's a film subject too taboo, we haven't found it yet. Welcome. Hi, Tom. Hey, Slate. How are you? I'm great. It's been so long since I've seen you between episodes. Right. It's been about 10 minutes. <laughs> we're doing good, though. Yeah. It's, listen, so. we made a lot of jokes that we were going to be super rusty or whatever. I feel like we kind of fell back into this. I think so. Pretty think easily. So. Yeah. We haven't even started drinking yet, which is impressive. I forced that on you. No, I was you like, God, I did enough drinking. Well, that was the thing I was going to ask you about, because God knows I did enough drinking over the pandemic to last me <laughs> through whatever the next <laughs> pandemic is going to be, which will probably start tomorrow. Right. Did you do anything? You bought a shitload of stuff. Tell me right now, what'd you buy? Well, let's just clarify. I didn't buy a shitload of stuff Mm -hmm. per se, but I bought some stuff from eBay. I bought the whole first year of Heavy Metal Magazine. (laughs) You didn't? (laughs) Yeah, the 1974 first year. I got the very first issue off of eBay. Actually, it was a pretty good deal for what it was. I mean, it was was really only a couple hundred bucks. Okay. I was going to say, did it cost more than $1,000? No, not even close. It was like maybe 200 bucks. All right. Because I came close to buying some numerous thousand dollar items and managed to calm myself down. So Yeah, I didn't go that far. Okay, good. That's good. You got some really good movie posters. When I came here, I was like, I feel like I wasn't here that long ago and you've redecorated. So I've done that. I put up more movie posters, but also found a few more. There's this comic book store and it's called Bender's Comics. It's been the Phoebus area of Hampton for those of you who are familiar with that area and they just had a bunch of old movie posters mm-hmm. and I've gotten one or two for you yep. there before you got, got some cool ones though framed yeah. folded which I love the folded posters I do too They're, it's um, like real authentic yeah, it's not like I, a reprint, you know? No, I think these are the real ones. Three the Hard Way, Blaxploitation, and a couple other, like, Pop porn. Goes the Weasel. Yeah, yeah, and one that's called Kill, 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 which I think <laughs> is, like, Italian or something. It looks Italian. Yeah. But it's it's that great 70s movie poster art, and I think they're the real ones. And they were cheap, you know? It was seven or eight bucks at most. Yeah. Know? So I was like, yeah, I'm going to buy these and put them up. So, yeah, so cool. it was a good find, yeah. yeah. But uh, what about you? What did you buy? 
Size of dog. Boy, I bought a dog and a car, which are about the same price. (laughs) The dog was expensive. Yeah. She's very special. Yeah. Um, The main thing that was like crazy for me is like I traveled so much during the pandemic and never got COVID. And people were turning up their nose at me being like, you shouldn't do this. And I was like, I know, but I'm being super, super careful. But I went to Dollywood. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I came and visited you in October. We rented a house and a bunch of our friends came. We all quarantined. We all got COVID. COVID tests. It was tumultuous, but we all managed to do it and spend a week together in October. I went to Miami twice, which is like the worst place you can go (laughs) during a pandemic because, of course, they don't give a shit. And I just masked up the whole time. I stayed outdoors. I quarantined. By the time I was done, I had 16 COVID tests by the time I got vaccinated and I didn't get it. So it's a little shocking. But again, I was very, very careful, as careful as I possibly could have been. Yeah. While also going to Dollywood in the middle of a pandemic. So, all right. Well, listen, just wanted to kind of hear what what you did. I mean, I kind of knew some of this stuff. I didn't know about the heavy metal magazine, though. You've been hiding that one. Yeah. You're I a little embarrassed about that. I just, I think I watched the movie again and I always liked it as a kid. And I was like, I'm not doing shit. And I was just on eBay. That's the problem. That's you get on problem. eBay, you start fucking around on eBay. I, was- I almost bought a $4,000 photo of David Bowie. Like, <laughs> he told me about that. <laughs> thank God that I just like, was like, I'll just, I'll decide tomorrow. And I, I like woke up the next day and was like, just close that tab on your computer. And then that problem will be fixed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. I have been working on this episode for so long. Mm -hmm. I've been like living this episode. So this (laughs) is kind of like my, this is my opus. Oh, great. And, and, you know, obviously my season seven closer too. So I'm super pumped about it. I hope you like it. I'm sure I will. Yeah. So first things first, this is kind of a companion piece to my episode on hagsploitation, but there's a lot of differences in these topics. So you remember that I set some boundaries with that episode and I defined hagsploitation as a genre being about older women, the exploitation of older women, usually a former Hollywood actress that is now aged out of the film industry and can only get roles where filmmakers watch her go crazy as seen in movies like Lady in a Cage with Olivia de Havilland, What's the Matter with Helen starring Debbie Reynolds and Shelley Winters, and of course the film that started it all, Whatever Happened to Baby Jane starring two of the queens of today's topic, Joan Crawford and Betty Davis. It's the movie you literally talk about every day of your life. I live this movie. I live this topic. You it's, managed to refer to it in every conversation we've ever had. I'm hoping that after I do this episode, I can kind of close this chapter of so this too. like obsession that I have over it. And I hope maybe you can exercise over. this movie out of your system with this episode. I've written a letter to Also, not to be confused with women's films. And that's kind of a genre that started in the silent era and ran up until about the 1960s. These are basically melodramas with lead female performances that were made for female audiences, but were usually written and directed by men. While men's pictures were about war, crime, Western life, etc., women's pictures were about love triangles, unwed motherhood, illicit affairs, the rise to power, and mother-daughter relationships. And of course, there were many queens of women's pictures from the 30s through the late 50s. So Olivia de Havilland for The Heiress and To Each His Own, both of which she won Oscars for. Oscars is going to be a big topic today. So, okay, great. Yeah. Betty Davis in films like Jezebel in 1938, that's when Betty Davis 
Davis won her second Best Actress Award, and now Voyager from 1942. And later in film history, as Betty Davis's career stalled, and Joan Crawford caught a second win in films like Possessed from 1947 and Sudden Fear from 1952, which both of which gave Joan her final two Oscar nominations. Okay. And of course, Betty and Joan had one of the biggest real-life feuds in Hollywood history, which fueled their later careers, whether they truly hated each other or they were just a product of Hollywood's gossip rags and studios pitting women against each other to make headlines and therefore ticket sales off of these feuds, we'll never really know. Right. But people were obsessed with it, and they still are, as evidenced in Feud, Joan and Betty from Ryan Murphy, that I'm pretty sure he came up with after listening to my Hagsploitation episode. Oh, clearly. Yeah, yeah. We'll talk more about that later. Yep. So let's set some boundaries first on this topic. This episode is about films where women are pitted against each other in film and the effects that they had on their careers and true life relationships with other women. So the only criteria here is that the center of each film we talk about today features the confrontation of two or more women where men are not involved. This may sound like a very broad topic, but I actually struggled to find a huge amount of films where men were not at the center of these fights. Yeah. So something like Death Becomes Her, for example, has Goldie Hawn and Meryl Streep at each other's throats, but Bruce Willis was in the middle of it. Doesn't count. My Best Friend's Wedding pits Julia Roberts against Cameron Diaz over the marriage of Cameron Diaz to Dermot Mulroney. Doesn't count. Hidden Figures, Thelma and Louise, Nine to Five, A League of Their Own are all about female camaraderie, so those don't fly. Right. Today, we are only talking about a woman against another woman that inherently have personal differences that can only be solved by fighting and why we love to watch them fight, fight out their differences. Sweet. I'm going to mix things up a little bit. I'm going to do these films by topic and relationship to each other instead of going chronologically. Okay. And with that, I'm going to start with class wars. So women that come from different classes, and that's the basis of their problems. Okay. The first film I want to talk about is the big, flashy dramedy, The Women from 1930. The Women was directed by George Cukor based on a racy play that had to be adapted to make the film acceptable for the production code. And first off, The Women was a huge idea at the time. The entire cast of more than 130 speaking roles were female. It was set in the glamorous Manhattan apartments of high society. It's basically like a commentary on the pampered lives and power struggles of the rich, bored housewives at the time and the women that work for them. So the the lower class women. There are no male characters seen or heard in the film whatsoever. So it was a really big deal, you know, at the time. It was a really big idea. The film stars Norma Shearer, Joan Crawford, Rosalind Russell, Paulette Goddard, Joan Fontaine, and Virginia Gray. And it was pretty appropriate that the two leads were Norma Shearer and Joan Crawford. Some background, Norma Shearer was born of privilege in Canada due to her father's successful construction business. She eventually found herself in Hollywood as an extra, but soon in a romantic relationship with the head of production at MGM, Irving Thalberg, so the biggest name in in showbiz at the time. Right. She was very talented, and she was already a star when they married in 1927. Only a few years later, she won her first of two Best Actress Awards, something that many actresses felt was nepotism, considering Norma got the best roles there were at MGM. Yeah. She's married to the head of production. Mm-hmm. In contrast, Joan Crawford, in real life, was basically born in 
in squalor. She had been abandoned by a string of her mother's partners and had to serve food and clean for her private school privileged schoolmates in order to pay her tuition. She washed clothes in laundromats. She worked as a sales girl. She worked for a living so that she could basically dance at night. And that's really how she got her start. She didn't really want to be an actress. She wanted to be a dancer. But the thing about Joan Crawford is she has these big, giant, bold, beautiful eyes. And that was something that in the early silent films, you know, really made the screen light up. So in silent films, you had to do all the expressions with your face and she had these amazing eyes. And so that's really how she became an actress because of, of her looks. Yeah. She also worked hard as shit. Like you could probably say that Norma Shearer had been born into privilege. She went to Hollywood and then she fell into more privilege and then she won Oscars and everything was great. And Joan was like shoveling shit her entire life. She worked really hard. She fought really hard. She's had this no bullshit, you know, kind of persona. She didn't have the upbringing or the connections to Hollywood like anyone else. So she fought really hard with her work ethic. And Mm -hmm. it worked, obviously. The Women was a huge success, as it had both Norma Shearer and Joan Crawford in roles they could both understand. Norma Shearer plays a wealthy socialite, and Joan Crawford plays a shop girl who was having an affair with Norma's husband. Norma was obviously the sympathetic character since the audience worships the rich, and Joan the social climber trying to sleep her way to the top, which was probably true of her off-screen. And Joan has one of the best farewells in all of the Woman vs. Woman films. Well, girls, looks like it's Back to the perfume counter for me. And by the way, there's a name for you ladies, but it isn't used in high society, outside of a kennel. The Women is a little cringy now because it is a movie about women gossiping mostly about men in their lives, but it's a classic film, you know, it's yeah. it's pretty great. Not So Terrific was the remake in 2008. Remember this one? I, yeah, actually. Yeah. Annette Benning, Ava Mendez, Deborah Messing, Jada Pinkett Smith, and Meg Ryan, all who got nominated for Worst Actress at the Razzies. Oh, wow. But lost to Paris Hilton for The Hottie and the Naughty. Okay, well, yeah. that's fair. So instead of updating the plot and introducing modern themes director diane english kind of just stuck with the same characters in the plot line and like i said it was kind of cringy now yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. so i haven't seen it apparently it's t- it got the worst reviews yeah know? it doesn't surprise yeah. me alfred hitchcock was also really into social status in some of his american films most notably rear window strangers mm-hmm. on a train and for this episode rebecca from 1940 rebecca is about a wealthy aristocrat that remarries after his first wife rebecca dies under mysterious circumstances joan fontaine who was also in the women every woman that i mention is going to come back up again because okay. it's very very circular so she plays the second wife opposite Judith Anderson is Mrs. Danvers, the maid who is obsessed with dead Rebecca and has no interest in anyone trying to fill her shoes. And then there's Rebecca, who we never see, but kind of plays a role as a lingering presence. Like she's not a ghost. There's no ghosts in this movie. Right. But she does live within the movie as a character. And Miss Danvers tries to get Joan Fontaine to commit suicide or be disposed of one way or the other by Laurence Olivier. So whether Mrs. Danvers was a lesbian or was doing her duty as a maid to a much more high-class woman is up for debate. But this is a film where two, sometimes three women of varying social status were pitted against each other. Both Joan Fontaine and Judith Anderson were nominated for Oscars. Neither won, although Rebecca did win Best Picture, so... But wait, there's more. So remember when I said there were some queens of today's topic, one of which was Olivia de Havilland? Mm -hmm. Rebecca's Joan Fontaine was actually Olivia de Havilland's sister, and they hated each other. Really? 
didn't Ooh. know that. I didn't either. So Olivia was the golden child growing up and Joan lived in her shadow, something that would continue as they both moved to Hollywood and Olivia's success overpowered Joan's. But then the whole thing came to an head when Olivia and Joan were both nominated for Best Actress in 1941, Olivia de Havilland for Hold Back the Dawn and Joan Fontaine for Suspicion. Olivia was expected to win, like everyone was like, she's got it in the bag, but then Joan won instead. Joan ignored her sister's congratulations when she went to collect her statuette. In 1947, Olivia won an Oscar for To Each His Own, and she snubbed Joan. They both died without ever making up. Damn. Yeah. Let's skip way ahead to the 80s. Okay. For those that don't remember Shelley Long, she got her break as a previously wealthy and prima donna turned waitress in the show Cheers in mm-hmm. the mid 80s. You remember Cheers? Oh, yeah, of yeah, course. Yeah. It's a good show. She left the show in the peak of its popularity to make movies, and while ultimately her career didn't last too long, she made a few good movies and typically played the exact same character in all of them. Yeah. A woman of high social status that somehow has to make it in the real world. Right. For today's conversation, we're going to talk about Troop Beverly Hills. I knew you were going to talk about this movie. I knew, is it Money Pit? Is it, I was like, no, I know it's Troop Beverly Hills. Jesus. I, I actually went back through and tried to stitch this through all of the films of Shelley Long's career mm-hmm. kind of had it with outrageous fortune but i couldn't quite pull it off because they were fighting over a man the whole time yeah yeah. and then i was like no troop beverly hills is all about women battling women okay yeah so it got terrible reviews but it got a little bit of an 80s cult status now it it's does. real fun it's yeah, a yeah. real fun movie so rough plot a wealthy socialite is getting a divorce and volunteers to be den mother of the wilderness girls to get closer to her daughter but of course all the girls are from beverly hills and have no idea how to camp, build a fire, or do anything in the wilderness. The girls in Shelley Long are made fun of, and they end up going up against another troop mother, who is a retired army nurse from Culver City. That's very working class, you right. know, not Beverly Hills. She tries to infiltrate Shelley Long's troop, but only finds out that while they aren't great at surviving the wilderness, they are learning how to survive their personal environments. To be honest, like the sympathy is for the rich white girls, and the enemy is the poor troop. Although this was very common in women's films, like The Women, where the audience side with the society women and the shopkeepers like Joan Crawford of the bad girls, you yeah. know, whether because they're having affairs or in this case, if you remember the other troop later, she's very lesbian like, you know, she's kind of like this butch, like manly, non manicured, like poor woman from Culver City or whatever. Yeah. So it's kind of funny. I watched, <laughs> I've seen this movie a few times. I haven't seen it a hundred, but I've seen it a few. Nobody, and that's listening to this right now, is shocked by that statement. Yeah, yeah, that's a fun one. Yeah. Phyllis Neffler's life was a symphony of spending. This one. Out. I'll take the rest. Until her husband stopped the music. You never give me an ounce of credit for anything I do. That's because you never do anything! Well, then I guess I'm going to do something right now. Approve! Mom's going to be our new troop leader. Who are you? Uh, Phyllis Neffler. Troop Beverly Hills. Now, she's changing her style. Well, girls, are you ready to rough it? From Rodeo Drive. I can't let you take the girls out there alone. Why not? Because you get lost in your walk-in closet. The cookie drives. That jamboree thing sounds fabulous. (laughs) My trip is definitely going. What is a jamboree? From room service. Just what you call roughing it? One bathroom for nine people? Yes. To public service. Today I am here to demonstrate for you CPR. Last time I did this, I got more than a patch for it. And from high society. Do you like people to call you dictator or just 
stick. To high adventure, Shelley Long. What an adventure. Isn't nature fabulous, girls? Troop. Beverly Hills. That was in 1989. It would take about another 20 years to get us a film like Bridesmaids in 2011. Yeah. Bridesmaids was a huge hit, featuring an all-female comedian cast of Kristen Wiig, Maya Rudolph, Rose Byrne, and little known then, I thought that was so funny, Melissa McCarthy, who's like the most famous of all of them now. Yeah. Rough plot, even though everyone has seen this movie. Kristen Wiig has lost her bakery, her savings, and her boyfriend is forced to work as a shop girl. Are you seeing a pattern? Sure am. Yep. And is asked to be a bridesmaid in her best friend's wedding. She meets the other bridesmaids, and a rivalry between her and Rose Byrne begins because, of course, Rose is rich, sophisticated, and beautiful. Mm -hmm. And the two both try to sabotage each other's friendship to Maya Rudolph. Well, this is not necessarily a film about social status. There are numerous scenes where Kristen Wiig is outdone by Rose Byrne, including the now classic airplane scene where all the bridesmaids are in first class except Kristen Wiig, who, after taking a bunch of Xanax, keeps trying to sneak into first class and says the classic line. You know this one? I forgot. Help me, I'm poor. (laughs) (laughs) I forgot all about that. All right, I'm going to change the subject from class and social structure to professional rivalries. Okay. So here we'll talk about women trying to get ahead, but there's another woman in the way. All right. And of course, the first film stars Betty Davis in the 1950 film All About Eve. Betty Davis stars as Margot Channing, a famous Broadway actress who meets Eve, played by Ann Baxter, a younger woman who worships Margot and has seen her perform hundreds of times. Mm -hmm. Margot takes Eve in and tries to help her, little knowing that Eve is lying and using Margot to propel her own career, which she is successful in doing, stealing men in roles and ultimately winning awards for it. And Margot basically has no choice but to sit back and watch this much younger, very talented woman steal her show. Show. Huh. While we're talking about Betty Davis, I want to mention that she and Ann Baxter got along great during All About Eve. It was her other co-star, an unknown actress known as Marilyn Monroe, huh. that Betty disliked since rumor has it it took her 14 takes on her first scene with Betty since she was so nervous. She wasn't really unknown. Like She had been sure. in a couple of other things, but this was an early, this is one of the earlier Marilyn Monroe films. Yeah. Betty snapped at her, and rumor has it Marilyn went backstage to puke, because obviously Betty Davis is a huge star. Marilyn Monroe is kind of a nobody. Yeah. Flash forward a few years to when Marilyn won a Golden Globe for Sun Like It Hot in 1960 and wore a dress so tight she had to be sewn into it and could barely walk to the stage to accept her award. It was a huge spectacle for 1960. Yeah, I bet. Joan Crawford was there and not pleased. She responded in the tabloids the next day, quote, It was like a burlesque show. The audience yelled and shouted and Jerry Lewis got up on the table and whistled. That's true, actually. Wow. But those of us in the industry just shuddered. The public likes provocative feminine personalities, but it also likes to know that underneath it all, the actresses are ladies. <laughs> Such a Joan Crawford, like, wow. biting thing to say. God. I love her. All About Eve is considered to be one of the best films in American history, and it won a ton of awards, including Best Picture and Best Director. However, Betty and Ann Baxter were both nominated for Best Actress, and guess what happened? Nobody won. Neither won. This will obviously be a theme moving forward where women are pit against each other in films in real life and then again in award shows, which both rarely ever win. Right. 
And that's exactly the same thing that happened in 1977's The Turning Point, starring Anne Bancroft and Shirley MacLaine. The Turning Point is about two aging ballerinas, Anne Bancroft is still working even though she knows she can't continue much longer, while Shirley MacLaine has left the company to have husband and kids. Things get tense when Shirley MacLaine brings her daughter back to New York City to join the same dance group, now as Anne Bancroft's rival. Not a lot is known about their relationship backstage. Most say it was terse and chilly. However, there's a scene in a bar where the two are fighting and Anne, unscripted, throws a drink in Shirley MacLaine's face. It's a ploy to get a shocked reaction out of Shirley, which it did, but word on the street was that Shirley took major offense to it. Both received Oscar nominations in the lead category, but both lost to Diane Keaton for Annie Hall that year. Now we're in the 80s, and this is the most 80s movie ever made, Working Girl, from 1988. (laughs) I thought about whether or not this is technically counted, because Harrison Ford is like all up in this movie, but the truth is you don't really need him in order to tell this story, which is basically a power boss played by Sigourney Weaver steals a merger idea from her subordinate, Melanie Griffith, and tries to play it off as her own. Sigourney Weaver goes out of town, and Melanie Griffith decides to live the rich boss life and dresses in her clothes and starts arranging meetings to pull off the merger while Sigourney Weaver is laid up with a broken leg. This whole thing comes to a head, of course, and the two women fight for Harrison Ford, for credit of the idea, for Sigourney Weaver's job, etc. I will spoiler the ending. Melanie Griffith gets a job offer from Harrison Ford that she thinks is for a secretary, yet when she gets there on her first day, it's actually a junior executive level job. Right. Melanie Griffith and Sigourney Weaver were both nominated in lead and supporting characters. Neither one. So who won? Do you have that information? Best Actress, Jodie Foster for The Accused. Okay, yeah. Best Supporting Actress, Gina Davis, The Accidental Tourist. Huh. I've never seen that movie. I haven't either, actually. I remember when it came out. I want to jump ahead to the 2000s to talk about two films where women are pit against each other for rivalry in high school. Okay. The first is Bring It On from 2000, (laughs) where a white cheerleading team is rightly accused of stealing routines from a black team. Yeah. Similar in theme was 2004's Mean Girls, where Lindsay Lohan, a smart homeschooled teenager, befriends three young privileged high school women. At first, it seems that there is room for all four of them, but you know high school. All four women get involved in plots and schemes to bring the others down. They ultimately make good at the end of the movie, but in a way that makes it understood that they weren't meant to be in the same social circles. That sometimes women just cannot be friends. Right. Yeah. There's one more I couldn't ignore, and that's The Devil Wears Prada from 2006. Yeah. I love this movie so much. But it breaks a lot of conventions in the genre, particularly because it's somewhat based on a true story about a young journalist that applies for a job as basically Anna Wintour's assistant. Yeah. So you've got a young woman up against an older woman, both of who are trying desperately to hold on to their jobs, their dreams, and the people they love. Enter Emily Blunt, another assistant trying to climb up the ladder, and you've got a perfect clash of three very different women all ultimately seeking the same goal. Right. Yeah. Okay, switching topics to something you recommended, horror slash exploitation, and that's starting in the mid-50s with The Bad Seed from 1956. Yeah. I'm going to get to mother versus daughter at the end of this, but since the daughter in this case is a psychopath, arsonist, murderer, it seems like it fit in this category a little bit better. Yeah, that makes sense. 
while we've seen many films with a psychopath murdering male child, like The Good Son, we need to talk about Kevin, Gus Van Sant's Elephant, this is, I think, the first and one of the few rare movies where the murderer is the daughter, in this case, very young. We talked about the bad seed and kids that kill, but I thought I would mention it just because it is a horror film and a pretty exploitation-y movie as well. Yeah. You know, and a very, a very interesting take on the mother-daughter, woman versus woman. Yeah, true that. By the time the 60s rolled around, women's films were over, like I mentioned, and psychological horror was in thanks to Psycho in 1960. Joan Crawford had to resort to finding her own roles at this point as she and Betty Davis were the only golden age of Hollywood actresses still consistently working. Betty had been working for 35 years, Joan for almost 40. They made the gothic horror slash exploitation hit Whatever Happened to Baby Jane in 1964. It was a huge success for both of them, launching a subgenre called Hagsploitation, which we talked about. Oh, yeah. Joan and Betty both made more hag movies after this, including Joan and William Castle's Straight Jacket, but they actually were supposed to be in a sort of sequel, Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte. This obviously never happened, and the reason was woman versus woman. <laughs> so after the crazy success of Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, both Betty and Joan were hoping to snag an Oscar. It would be Joan's second if she won and would be Betty's third, making her the first actress at the time to have three. Unfortunately, Betty got the nomination and Joan did not. Rumor has it that Joan petitioned Oscar voters not to vote for Betty, although this is obviously speculation. What she did do was phone the other four nominees and offer to accept their awards if they were not able to make the show. Of course, Anne Bancroft won for The Miracle Worker, and Joan accepted the award. So Joan was standing backstage with Betty Davis. And even though Joan didn't win Best Actress, she won Best Actress. Right, gotcha. Betty was not thrilled with this. Imagine Uh, that. She knew this was probably the last chance she had to be the first woman to win three, and she was right. She never got nominated again after that. And now Joan was photographed with the other winners holding that statue that she thought was hers. So now they head to their next film together, and already there's this bad blood. So it got a lot worse. Obviously, (laughs) Joan didn't know that director Bob Aldrich had given Betty Davis an associate producer title on the film. Joan showed up her first day and was not met at the airport in Louisiana. Betty thought Bob wasn't listening to her suggestions as producer. And then the big thing was Joan went to her trailer to process a note and was basically abandoned by the crew overnight. So they were on location. Joan comes out of her trailer and everybody's left her there. Oh, wow. Yeah. On returning to the LA studios to finish the film, Joan realized her monologue, her big Oscar-winning monologue, had been cut out. And she suddenly felt ill, in quotations, felt ill. She checked herself into a hospital, which shut down production for weeks. We'll never know whether she was sick or whether she thought she could just shut down the film entirely, you know, if she just never showed back up again. Ultimately, she was replaced with one of Betty's best friends, Olivia de Havilland. Remember I told you. Yeah. Comes back around. Comes back around. So Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte receives six Oscar nominations, but none for Betty or Olivia. Neither would ever be nominated ever again. And Joan never played a lead role in a Hollywood film after this so that was the end of it for her huh there was a moment in feud which comes right at the end of shooting hush hush sweet charlotte where joan confronts betty about what she believed to be the sabotage of her on set this is obviously a very fictionalized version of what happened but pretty much sums up the entire rivalry between betty and joan so i wanted to play a little snippet of that right this entire production is an elaborate opportunity for you to humiliate me isn't it what are you talking about you bob the whole fucking crew 
the proclaimed alliance back in Los Angeles. You never had any intention of honoring. That is not true. Christ, what a fool I was to sign up for this picture. And a bigger fool to think I could ever trust you. I need you to be brilliant. I'm just trying to help you get there. Oh, you're giving me a hand up? Because you're the superior talent. Well, I don't want your help. You've always been overrated. I guess that explains my 11 Oscar nominations. The Academy doesn't reward you for your talent, for Christ's sakes, Betty. They reward you because they see how hard you sweat. They don't see the character, they see the acting. And they don't see you at all because of all your glamour makeup. Well, let me give you a tip. The answer to feeling unattractive isn't to make yourself even uglier. I'm a character actress. Well, I said what I came to say. I'm going to bed. Joan, how did it feel to be the most beautiful girl in the world? It was wonderful. The most joyous thing you could ever imagine, and it was never enough. Well, what about you? How did it feel to be the most talented girl in the world? Great. And it was never enough. Hexploitation was pretty short-lived because as the 70s came along, independent film scripts were headed in two very different directions. One, they were headed to Hollywood. The top three award darlings in 1975 were Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore, Dog Day Afternoon, and One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. These were all scripts that probably wouldn't have gotten much Hollywood traction in the mid to late 60s if it weren't for indies like Midnight Cowboy and Easy Rider. Right. And the other direction indies were headed into were exploitation or horror. And that's where this next film, Ilsa She-Wolf of the SS, takes us. Oh, wow. This is the first in a series of Ilsa movies. And while none of them are actually woman versus woman films, Ilsa is the template for a different type of antihero. Right. In most of the films we have talked about today, the women that are in conflict are both sympathetic and aggressive. They're multifaceted characters, and we watch the culture clash between them. Ilsa, however, is a fucking monster. She is terrible. Yeah. Yeah. She gets into conflict with men and women alike. She has no friend. She's only in it for herself. Right. I probably wouldn't have even mentioned this in the episode, but there there is another genre of film, women in prison films, which kind right. of have similar themes as well. Both Ilsa and in this example, the female wardens of women in prison movies have in common is that the female bad guy, the, the woman isn't afraid to beat, rape, and kill other women to get ahead with drug lords, the mafia, oil sheiks, prison wardens, et cetera, to get ahead. They're obviously a much larger conversation, but I did want to mention this because while controversial, these characters could have been played by men and they wouldn't be woman versus woman films. Right. So I'm saying neither Ilsa nor women in prison are right for this topic, but I would love to hear your thoughts. Wanda the Wicked Warden, which is one of the Ilsa movies, is a straight up women in prison film. It's a lot of crossover. There's a lot of crossover. The first Ilsa movie which I'm wearing a shirt with Ilsa on it right I was just about to say, you're wearing an Ilsa shirt. Ilsa shirt as we speak. Um, These movies are terrible, by the way. So I'm not a fan of them, but I'm a fan that they exist. You know, she's killing men who can't sexually satisfy her, but she's also torturing and killing a bunch of women. Mm -hmm. And so I think at the end, all these women come back and basically like eat her, like kill her and eat her. So they all kind of get revenge on her. And and just for, so you know, that's not much of a spoiler because Ilsa dies at the end of, 
every one of every these Ilsa movies. Movie, it's yeah. like it's, she's they like Kenny from South Park. She's a Nazi. Yeah. yeah, yeah, but I mean, she dies at the end of all these movies. But yeah, the Ilsa movies. Oh man, they could be their own thing. You know. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, I obviously when I was doing this topic, I had eighty million things to talk <laughs> about, and I kind of whittled them down. But it wasn't until you and I had had a conversation, and you were like, "You should break this down a little bit differently because the horror exploitation thing is like its own thing." Yeah, yeah. and that's why I broke it down into its own section. Yeah, that's cool. Which I was gonna talk about Carrie, but we did really talk about this in Hag Exploitation and Period Piece, but we have never talked about the fine film Single White Female from 1992, <laughs> which we watched together oh, just wow. recently. Let's talk about it. Where to start on that either? Mm-hmm. So I hadn't seen it since 1992 when we watched it again. Yeah. Jennifer Jason Lee and Bridget Fonda are the stars of this movie, and I think Jennifer Jason Lee becomes her best friend, her roommate. Her roommate, her room, she moves in with her. And um, then tries to take over her life, basically. Right. And then um, stabs her boyfriend in the eye with a shoe. Kills the dog. Uh, Oh, yeah, kills the dog. Oh, man, I forgot all about that. Kills the dog, yeah. And then ultimately you find out at the end that she had a twin sister when she was a kid. Oh, that's right. And what, did she drown her own sister I think so. She killed her, I think. She killed her own sister, and so she's basically spending her entire life trying to get that twin sister back. That's right. That kind of camaraderie She's super fucked up in the head, so she's also trying to kill Bridget Fonda, while also being her twin sister and trying to be her, it's yeah. We're making it sound better than it is because it's not really a great movie. Although I enjoy it, it's too long. Like you're absolutely right, it is too long because because we watched it and it was just like get to it. We know all the story beats. Yeah. But it just kept dragging. And then the showdown between the two of them, it's like, they're on the 15th floor. Now, all of a sudden, they're on the 12th yeah. floor. Now, they're on the first floor. Now, they're in the basement. Now, they're back up on the 15th floor. And it's like, you don't have to cover the entire apartment. Right. Like, just both of you beat the shit out of each other. We know what's going to happen at the end. Bridget right. Fonda's going to live. Jennifer Jason Lee is going to die. Like, get on with it. Just get on have with it. Have one bang up, like, seven minute scene of them going at each other and right. then end the film. Instead, they drew it out to, like, 45 minutes. Yeah, they really just... Yeah. Yeah, it dragged it out, yeah. but I enjoyed it. I did enjoy it because it is there's a lot of nudity in it, like an abnormal amount of nudity in that movie. Right, there's a lot that helped. That definitely helped. You would never see that much nudity in a in a movie now. No, no, that, that's a good point too. Because at that time, too, Bridget Fonda was I feel like naked in every movie she made. Then, yeah, yeah. but so was Jennifer Jason Lee. So it, it was a perfect, a perfect match. Yeah. yeah, a lot of nudity. Okay, we've talked about social climbing, professional rivalry, horror and exploitation. Now let's talk about fighting within the family, because I want to talk about Elizabeth Taylor. Okay. Here's a little throwback to a movie we actually talked about in our first ever episode on cannibalism, and that film is Suddenly Last Summer from 1959, starring Elizabeth Taylor and Katherine Hepburn. Rough plot is that a young woman returns home from a summer trip to Europe and is institutionalized due to the trauma surrounding the death of her cousin. Catherine Hepburn is the evil aunt who's trying to get Elizabeth Taylor lobotomized so the truth of what happened to her son will never come out. And I say that in air quotes because, spoiler, he was trying to use Elizabeth Taylor as bait for him to have sex with men there, and ultimately these men killed and ate him. This movie was in 1959, just FYM. Right, yeah, no shit. Both Elizabeth Taylor and Catherine Hepburn received Oscar nominations for this role. Let me guess, hold on, don't don't tell me. Neither one of them got him. Correct. 
Seems like Elizabeth Taylor and Catherine Hepburn got along fine, but Elizabeth Taylor went on to have a huge feud with her longtime best friend, Debbie Reynolds. You know about this one? No. Debbie Reynolds was happily married to Eddie Fisher with two kids, one of which is Carrie Carrie Fisher. Fisher. When Elizabeth Taylor's boyfriend, Mike Todd, died in a helicopter crash, Eddie Fisher went to comfort Elizabeth Taylor, and less than a month later, he up and left Debbie Reynolds for her. He had two kids with her, and he up and just left her. dick. It was a huge tabloid sensation and ultimately killed Eddie Fisher's career. Yeah. But for Debbie Reynolds and Elizabeth Taylor, the public ordeal made them bigger draws at the box office, commanding higher salaries per picture, proving once again that female feuds made Hollywood more money. Yeah. It should also be said that these women profited off of these feuds to a certain degree. Yeah. But who really profited were the tabloids and Hollywood film execs, most of whom were white men. So there's a double-sided coin here, but ultimately most of the women ended up losing in the long run. We'll talk about this more in a minute. Okay. I'm going to switch topics to mother and daughter. But right before we do, I want to talk about mother-in-law versus daughter-in-law for just a second in two films, starting with Monster in law from 2005 you bringing this one up with jane fonda and jennifer lopez can you believe that i didn't bring up heather so i could bring up monster in law right yeah jesus what's wrong with you the only reason is is because it's jane fonda and jennifer lopez both of whom have been known to have plenty of feuds on their own true jane fonda had not been in a film for 15 years and so it was kind of odd that her return to the screen was the critically panned dud monster in law i am i'd give you a rough plot here but the title says it all Mm. you know charlie had given up on trying to find the the perfect man until she met oh sorry i'm sorry kevin today she's going to meet his mother i'm nervous don't be nervous she's gonna love you you're bringing a girl home to meet your mother now kevin i'll introduce you to someone mom charlie very nice to meet you it's a pleasure to meet you please sit down and get the surprise oh my god of a lifetime charlie will you marry me no no it's too sudden she's in shock yes you're gonna need a moment alone i'll be right back monster-in-law what's going on here oh i'm so happy for you Now compare that to Crazy Rich Asians from 2018, where a young professor with a working class single mother travels to Singapore with her fiance and realizes that he and his family are in fact Crazy Rich Asians. The fiance is kind of just window dressing here because the main conflict is between Rachel, her rich mother-in-law, and her working class mother with a secretive past. I actually love that movie. I've not seen it. It's really good. I should see you it. You think you kind of know what it's going to be, and it's and, it, and it's not. It's yeah. a really good movie. I think give it a shot. One of the interesting things that sets 2000s and beyond women versus women films apart from earlier films is that you start to see happy endings like in Monster-in-Law. Jane Fonda decides to be nice to J-Lo since her mother-in-law was also a monster. And right. in Crazy Rich Asians over a game of Mahjong, they realize they aren't so different after all. Remember that in previous women versus women movies, like the women in that kennel comment mm-hmm. uh, Rebecca Mrs. Danver burns the fucking house down over all of the 
Christmas and all about Eve, Betty watches Ann Baxter steal her life. These women do not settle their differences. Right. It's really not around until the 2000s that things start to change where there is a mutual respect shown to women on opposite sides of the argument. I bring this up because both monster-in-law and crazy rich Asians resolve with the women understanding that while they're different and they always will be, they can still have a mutual respect of each other. It's a relatively new thing. Yeah, that's a good point. And now we get to mother versus daughter, which was really hard to narrow down because there were a lot of these and Mm -hmm. some really, really good ones. So I picked four or five, and I want to start with Mildred Pierce from 1945, starring, of course, Joan Crawford. Right. Joan was in the biggest slump of her career up to this point due to having been fired from MGM after a series of flops. She went to Warner Brothers, which also just happened to be the studio of Betty Davis. Betty was the biggest star there, and some say Warner Brothers wanted Joan so they could knock Betty down a peg when she got too big for her britches, as we say in the South. Right. And it totally worked. Betty was threatened by Joan because of her beauty and her glamour. Joan was threatened by Betty's talent and seven Oscar nominations, two of which she won. Joan had no nominations, no wins. Right. Joan accepted her first major role in the noir film Mildred Pierce about a single mother working as a waitress, trying to keep her bratty daughter in nice clothes and well-educated so that she wouldn't have to be working class like Joan. Got the mm-hmm. working class cool. Got it. Yep. But nothing is ever enough for Joan's daughter. She's a social climber. Joan's daughter kills someone, and Joan is trying to be a good mother and pinning it on someone else, but ultimately fails, and her daughter is arrested and taken to jail. Mildred Pierce was a huge hit. It was a huge surprise hit. Yeah. And began a huge comeback for Joan Crawford, now in her 40s. Betty Davis, in fact, was in a career slump at the time. She was being very picky about the roles she chose and passed on Mildred Pierce, which sucked real bad for her when Joan was nominated for her first Oscar and then out of the clear blue won. Yeah. It was a huge shock considering Joan was never known for her amazing acting skills. And now she was at Betty's studio winning Oscars for roles Betty turned down. Mm -hmm. Now flash forward 30 years later to the TV movie, The Disappearance of Amy, starring Faye Dunaway and Betty Davis as her mother. Faye Dunaway was a huge star, and this movie took place between Chinatown and Network, where she pretty much took everything that she was offered. Yeah. She was also known to be very difficult on set. Betty Davis hated her. Apparently, there was a scene with hundreds of unpaid extras where Faye was hours and hours late, and Betty was forced to entertain the extras by singing songs from Whatever Happened to Baby Jane to keep the cast and crew from walking off set. Say what you will about Betty and Joan, but they were both very, very professional actresses. They were right. always on time. They pulled many star diva fits, but never at the expense of the other workers on set. Right. Now, on the flip side, 1970s Joan Crawford hated the new generation of women that were coming up in Hollywood all except Faye Dunaway. Hmm. She's quoted in the press as saying, of all the actresses, to me, only Faye Dunaway has the talent and the class and the courage it takes to make a real star. After Joan's death in 1977, her estranged daughter Christine wrote the surprise hit book Mm -hmm. Mommy Dearest, positively trashing her mother. And of course, what did Faye Dunaway do after the disappearance of Amy with Betty Davis? She played Joan Crawford in Mommy Dearest. And we know how that turned out. Mm -hmm. Holy shit. Was what I doing in this closet when I told you no wire hangers ever? Three hundred dollar dress on a wire hanger. We'll see how many you got. We're gonna see how 
Yes, mommy dearest. When I asked you to call me that, I wanted you to mean it. Joan Crawford. The most dramatic role of her life was her life. Frank Kiblons presents Faye Dunaway as Joan Crawford in Mommy Dearest. That movie is fucking it's crazy. ridiculous. It's the craziest thing that's ever happened. <laughs> <laughs> I've talked about it in, oh God, every episode we've ever done. I mean, it's insane. Did a big thing on it in Hagsploitation, and it is crazy. I also read the book during the pandemic. I talked about it in Maniacal Moms. Oh, that's what it was, too. Because yeah. I was like, we talked about something else, but I know I only talked about it in something. It's crazy that yeah. that exists. It's so nutty. Yeah. I'm going to talk a little bit more about it at the end. Okay. Two more films I want to briefly chat about, and then I'm going to wrap this baby up. Okay. The first, Postcards from the Edge, starring Shirley MacLaine and Meryl Streep, was actually written by Debbie Reynolds and Eddie Fisher's daughter, Carrie Fisher. Mm-hmm. Remember when I said all this is connected? Come back around. Okay, cool. Yep. This is a fictional account of mother and daughter actresses with drinking and drug problems, which probably had some elements of truth between Carrie and Debbie, but was ultimately fiction. Meryl Streep was nominated for Best Actress. Shirley MacLaine was not. Meryl Streep did not win. Hmm. Another huge Oscar nominee was Lady Bird, about a mother and daughter relationship, this time with a female director, Greta Gerwig, and it focused around, I practice this, Swarce Ronan and her mother, Lori Metcalf, as they argue about Swarce graduating prom and going to college. Lady Bird was nominated for Best Picture, Director, Screenplay, was written by Greta Gerwig, Best Actress, and Best Supporting Actress. Guess what? Nobody won. Did that thing win anything? Nothing. Yeah. So here's my point. Obviously, most of these films and this topic were the product of male Hollywood. These women were pitted against each other in films and in real life to drive ticket sales one way or the other. Mm-hmm. We always kind of turn our nose down at, at these petty fights about Oscars and co-stars and leading men and producer credits. But what I've realized about this topic is that these films were all these women's livelihoods. Joan, Betty, Elizabeth Taylor, Faye Dunaway, they were all women in their prime fighting for their careers and legacies in a world where men decide their outcomes. Yeah. Joan did it by working hard and playing the game. She sent thank you notes and cozied up to her directors and turned her family into a press release. Betty took on the system. She sued Warner Brothers to get out of her contract and defied men that tried to take credit for her success. They were both fighting for their legacies, and so it's only natural that they would cross paths on and off screen, and the results would be tepid at best. Yeah. It's only natural that women have to compete for these roles, which a lot of time has them competing with each other on screen as well. True. And what sucks ass is that for a lot of these women, specifically Joan and Betty, they aren't remembered for their body of work and 50 or 60 year careers. They remember for Joan's role in the book and movie, mother daughter feud, mommy dearest and Betty in the sister on screen in real life feud monstrosity, baby Jane. Mm -hmm. While these are both fun to talk about, it's 
very reductive when you think about what these women accomplished in their lives. And, and even worse, if women didn't continue these feuds in their later years, they were forgotten. Right. When was the last time you heard Norma Shearer or Joan Fontaine's name brought up? I'm, like, never. Exactly. And speaking of Feud and Ryan Murphy, Feud got 15 Emmy nominations, more than any other show in 2018, including lead actress for both Susan Sarandon and Jessica Lange playing Betty Davis and Joan Crawford. Mm-hmm. Nobody won. <laughs> wow. That's fucking crazy. Here's some good news. The major winner that night was a woman versus woman show, and that was Big Little Lies. Okay, yeah. While there are still some woman versus woman feuds out there, for the most part, these seem to get sorted out a lot more than they used to. Katy Perry and Taylor Swift made up and were in a video together. Madonna and Gaga made up at the Met Gala a couple years ago. Paris Hilton and Nicole Richie made up. Alyssa Milano <laughs> and Shannon Doherty. You get the point. Mm-hmm. So that's my episode. This is the most research I've ever done on an episode i read actual books wow and so i hope you liked it i did i I learned a lot very much so it tied into a lot of the other topics that we've talked about over the course of the show and your other topics so that was nice that it sort of gave another angle to some of the things that we've discussed before yeah you know that was good i always worried about stuff like this i mean also in period piece of where i'm basically mansplaining women's issues to people and that was one of the reasons why i really wanted to kind of spend a lot of time to try to understand this as a thing because obviously as a man it's a little hard to be able to kind of get into the heads of this however as a white man (laughs) who I guess theoretically if we made any money off of this podcast then I would have been the perfect person to uh, to be able (laughs) to exploit women for the sake of my own wallet it's just unfortunately we don't make any money we don't make any money off this show but (laughs) but yeah it was really easy to kind of say well you know this is a tragic story because these women's lives were shattered by this feud that plagued them for their entire lives and the only people that profited were rich white men but it goes further than that because they did profit off of that feud if they didn't profit off of it they wouldn't have propelled it themselves and there's interviews of betty davis before she died she had a stroke half of her face is is not working and she's still talking shit about faye dunaway about joan crawford about all these people because it worked i mean that was what their careers were based on you know and and so it would be reductive to say that only white men profited off of this. Well, that's but, a good point, too, because they bought into this feud themselves. Right. You know, I mean, yep. they, they got energy from it. They, you know, they internalized it, too. It wasn't just like in a reality show where they sprinkle conflict in the housewives of Georgia or whatever, and they fight each other. Like, these women lived this yeah, themselves and helped perpetuate it on their own. You yeah. Know? And that's why you do start to see the turn of where, you know, these stories do start to have some happier endings. Even in Big Little Lies, you know, at the end, the women fight the whole time, but at the end, there's a murder. And then the last scene is them all walking on the beach together. You know, they all come together at the end. But, you know, in the 60s, you know, and beyond, especially for, you know, aging actresses in their 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s. And so the only way to keep themselves in the headlines as being in any way relevant is fighting. Right. You know, fighting other women their age, picking on Marilyn Monroe, picking on Faye Dunaway, you yeah. know. And, picking on the up-and-comers. Yeah, exactly. And the only way they could stay in the headlines was to say bitchy things, right. you know. And then all of a sudden, that was another headline that they could stay in. So, yeah. you know, it's it's sad. But also, that was them trying to prolong their careers, you know, right. in, a, in a man-controlled world. So, all right. Well, I loved doing this episode, obviously. It was obviously. great. I really I'm enjoyed it. hoping to end this chapter of my life of being obsessed <laughs> with Betty Davidson 
Joan Crawford. I'm, I'm pulling ready for you as well. For it to end. So am I. It had some low moments. Yeah. So yeah, the pandemic was very lonely for me. I only had Joan Crawford. Yeah. If we it. can get through Betty Davis and Joan Crawford and not watch any more Madonna movies, then this recording session was a, an amazing success. It paid for itself. Yes, it did. <laughs> it did indeed. So. All right. Well, thank you, everyone. I hope you enjoyed it. And uh, we got one more episode left. So we'll see you next week. All right. Bye, y'all. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Slums of Film History. You can find us on the web at slumsoffilmhistory.com, where you can find the links to some of the movies we talked about today. And also be sure to check us out on Facebook and Twitter, where we share a lot of additional content. And if you like the show or have any comments or suggestions, please drop us an email at slumsoffilmhistory at gmail.com or write us a review on iTunes. We'd love to hear from you. And as always, please fact check us and let us know if we left anything out. We're not professionals, just two friends that love gross movies. I did kind of lie when I redid the upstairs in my apartment. There is a wall that's just covered of framed Joan Crawford <laughs> paraphernalia. I framed Mommy Dearest, the actual novel that I oh, wow. Yeah. Um, there is no room anywhere here for you to talk. So if you're going to talk, <laughs> you got to just edge your way in. Know what Great. I mean?